We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast about human-animal interactions in the past. With you as always is me, Simona Falanga, and my co-host, Alex Fitzpatrick. And for this month's episode, we're actually going to be talking about getting into zooarchaeology. We kind of covered it in like our very first episode, but we've gotten, you know, a lot more listeners in the past. So it felt like it was probably good to like do a a whole episode kind of based on not necessarily like just what zooarchaeology is, but like how exactly you get into the field, because especially if you're like not someone who has gone through graduate studies, I feel like something as niche as archaeology can be kind of a weird thing to like get into. I don't know. I didn't really know how to get into any of this stuff till like I was at the end of my master's degree. So yeah, I think until I got more training in archaeology, I, think I didn't even know archaeology was a thing at all. Yeah. For most of my life. So but yeah, I mean, that's kind of, we could make this episode like two minutes long and just say that the short answer is to just do it. <laughs> if you want to become a zoo archaeologist, do it. And why not? Why not? Yeah, no, why not? It's, it's fun. You seem cooler to your friends because, you know, you could point out like bone stuff. Yeah, that's a great icebreaker of parties. Like, let me tell you the difference about a stragoli amongst various undulate species. Oh, what you do is you do it during, like, dinner. That's always fun. Yeah, you point out sort of which bone you're looking at. Oh, like, oh, so that, that's a chicken tibia. Oh, it's infused, meaning that it was a, a quite a young specimen. That, that's great. That's a great one for dinner parties. Exactly. And if you're me, it will become great inspiration for a bunch of tattoos. Also good. I really want another one. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> It's a good thing I'm broke. But yeah, no, I guess archaeology is a little bit easier said than done, though, I guess, going into it. But, you know, why would you want to study zooarchaeology other than all the other things we just mentioned, you know, being cool and all that. But if you're me, you really like osteology, but human skeletons give you anxiety. That's basically my reason for doing zooarchaeology. I had like one nervous breakdown in my human remains course in my master's degree and I was like I really like the osteology stuff I will never touch a human bone ever again which of course is hilarious given that like 25% of my PhD has been about human bones it's fine (laughs) it's fine it's fine now (laughs) I mean it's not it's not fine (laughs) but whatever I'm just gonna say it's because I don't know human bones What's a human? I don't know. I do it for the archaeology. Yeah. The advancement of the discipline. Yeah. It was a great sacrifice on my part. Oh, was it a ritualistic sacrifice? Of my brain. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know anything anymore. (laughs) There's nothing nothing inside my skull at this point. It's all leaked out. Oh. Yeah, it's really sad. But (laughs) not only that, I mean, if you're really interested in the environmental side of archaeology, I mean, that's so much of archaeology in terms of looking at past environments. Yeah, so I guess paleo-environmental reconstruction. Yeah. And the like, but also because in a way, like it sets the frame for sort of archaeological analysis. Of course, you know, it's in the term itself. So it's about anything that has, it revolves around human. It's very anthropocentric in itself archaeology so but by looking at animal remains so you look at the environment and so like everything around it so it sets the frame Mm -hmm. yeah or if you're anything like me just because you really like animals 
and you want to know about that ancient doggo there. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, all reasons are valid when it comes to why you want to do the archaeology. Is it because you hate fish and you want to like really prove that with science? Definitely do zoo archaeology. <laughs> okay, for a great PhD, why fish are gross? An analysis. Fish. <laughs> it just says fish. No. <laughs> Ugh. I guess it's too late for me to redo my PhD, but I could definitely like type out 400 pages on that at this point. You can try and do that for a postdoc. Fish. No. I know right now the University of York is part of the Sea Changes program, which is like a series of postdocs and PhDs that are all about, you know, the past environments of the ocean, the use of marine sources in the past, things like that. And maybe if I pitch them like the total opposite of that project, (laughs) just be like, what you need is one discerning voice out of all those voices who's like, no, all this work is garbage. I feel like David Orton would take me on. I don't know. I think it's a good pitch. I need a postdoc anyway. <laughs> what were we talking about? Zoarchaeology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, Simona, you hit the key points about zoarchaeology, though, in that it's very interdisciplinary. There's so many like approaches you can take with zooarchaeology, which means, in short, that there's loads of ways to get involved, especially, you know, you can be an archaeologist who wants to specialize into something like zooarchaeology, or you can be a biologist or a zoologist with an interest in the past. It's a lot of ways to kind of get into it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, to be fair, like, you can go into it with no background at all and just retrain. Yeah. Bastard approves. I mean, when I got into zooarchaeology, I mean, obviously... I was doing archaeology already, but I had a a pretty decent background in biology and had almost gone into my undergrad degree as a biologist and then decided that sounded too hard. So that's kind of like the kind of pathway I took eventually to get to it. So, you know, you can come from different places for sure. Yeah. To be fair, are you not squeamish about bones? Cool. Do you like animals? Yes. Excellent. That'll do. (laughs) Yeah, and I think one thing about zooarchaeology that makes it so, I guess, unique in terms of archaeological subfields is that, you know, it does, like we said, it's interdisciplinary, and it also touches upon so many subjects. As Simona, you were saying earlier, you know, it's reconstructing past environments and landscapes. You can look at subsistence strategies of humans. You could also look at the kind of population dynamics of different species as well throughout the past, which may or may not be affected by human actions. Cultural and ritual, obviously, it's our favorite thing to talk about on here. Symbolism. There's just so much. It's kind of like never ending. I mean, like, what's your favorite kind of zooarchaeological adjacent thing to do? I mean, personally, like the area within zooarchaeology I'm most interested to is the introduction of non-native species. Mm, yeah. So I mean, the deliberate introduction. I mean, we, we also, for, for any new listeners, we did a whole episode on that, so. I think like more like several when you get down to it. Yeah, it's just like if you, if you wanted to listen to us talk about ritual, that's basically every episode we've done. But I think another point needs to be made as well, like not necessarily about becoming a zoo archaeologist per se, but say if you're already an archaeologist to gain some zoo archaeological skills, because what the two go hand in hand. So like uh, knowing about zoo archaeology also helps you as an archaeologist. Because like, even something as futile, say if you're running a site, you find a bone and you, you do need to know whether it's human or animal because that dictates how you tackle it. It's also, you know, useful to get an idea, I don't know, say of industry or being able to distinguish a bone from worked or unworked. And then that also feeds into, say, if you're interested in experimental archaeology and sort of how material culture was made out of, of organic material bone in, in this instance. So I think there's something that needs to be said about gaining zooarchaeological training, even if you don't want to become a zooarchaeologist per se. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. And I think, it, again, that speaks to the fact that zooarchaeology is ultimately kind of just 
everywhere. It's very hard, I think, to do archaeology and not run into animal bones or animal related remains at all. So even just having that very base kind of knowledge of, like you said, just being able to say, okay, well, that's an animal bone. It's not a human bone. I think should be kind of like part of the the basic skills you learn as an archaeologist. Although archaeology is like a gigantic field one at the end of the day, and not everyone is going to be able to learn everything. But it's probably something you should learn if you're at least going on the field or doing post-excavation stuff. I think it's about like personal curiosity as well, because when you look at bulk finds from archaeological sites, the vast majority of what you're going to get is animal bone and perhaps pottery as well. So in a way, if you're an archaeologist and work in the field, you will find a lot of animal bone. So just like it'll be something you know, interesting, just for your own personal curiosity, saying, oh, like I found a bit of a sheep or a bit of a cow and so forth. Do you know, at university, I had a really, really good experience with zooarchaeology because just tapping into this kind of interdisciplinary thing, I remember they were talking about how having animals in a certain part of a, like a dwelling place kind of increase like things like rates of phosphor phosphorus in like the soil so when you like cored the soil for soil samples you'd have these stratas of like phosphorus and it kind of like if you map that out spatially you could kind of see where the kind of stables were where's the house was and like you could almost see the kind of the human landscape and i thought that was really really cool because it was like there was not really anything about the bones or anything like that it was actually more of a, a side effect of having the animals and keeping them in a certain place that kind of changed the chemical geography of that area which i, I thought was really really a cool aspect of it I'm sure that gets done all the time, but like when I first heard it, I was like, whoa, hey, this zoo archaeology is actually cool. That's really, that's not something I knew myself. That's quite interesting. But wondering, so what kind of analysis would you have to carry out on the soil sample to gain that information? So it's probably rather destructive. So what you do is you'd like core across your site at a certain depth. You'd then take like your slices of depth you'd probably reduce it with an acid and then you'd titrate that out with phosphorus and you probably put it into a mass spec to be most accurate you probably first reduce it with an acid and then mass spec it to get a kind of parts per million of phosphorus and then if you take that back to how you cored you could probably build up a kind of parts per million kind of strength of phosphorus across like a kind of a landscape the resolution based on how many cores and how many samples you took so would that be a sample sort of, of the archaeological deposits kind of archaeological but obviously like only archaeological because the animals are kept in a certain place and so you know they would excrete and the excrement would build up and like it would build up this kind of like concentration that you wouldn't necessarily find in the other parts of the soil because I was wondering whether that sort of this chemical change would be limited so to the archaeological deposits, whether it's, you know, just, oh, I forgot the term for it now, just, you know, the, we'll say ancient trampling <laughs> of, say, sort of within the dwelling or the enclosure, sort of where the livestock were kept, or would that leach all the way down into, I guess, what we usually refer to as the archaeological naturals, mm-hmm. as in, like, the soil, so the, the horizon that has not had any human action on if i remember correctly phosphorus like even if there was a bit of seepage the difference that you would have contrasting somewhere where animals weren't regularly kept with where they were the difference in phosphorus would be large enough you could draw a distinction even if there had been some sort of um what's the term diagenic alteration to the soils if there'd been any leaching or anything like that because in the wild kind of like in a normal kind of landscape uh, like large pockets of phosphorus aren't really just in the ground you know you usually have a biological reason why you have like a large chemical concentration of them so just by a comparative relative like amounts that's how you would know it's most likely somewhere where animals have been kept stationary because that concentration of phosphorus wouldn't be created randomly is that the question you had or am i answering a different question (laughs) Again. 
No, just more wondering sort of how far down would the leaching of phosphorus happen, whether it was limited to the archaeological deposit or whether it would go further down as well. I'm not sure. I know phosphorus is kind of like, it, it probably does travel. It's not locked in, so there is a possibility that it could leach. I could probably look it up. Oh, could look it up and add it to the show notes. Oh, yeah, I'll go and find something on that. But like, I just thought that was really cool that you're not using animals per se. You're using the effect of animals on the environment to infer things about human patterns of working. I just, that to me, that kind of like picture that you can build there that's really cool just to emphasize it's not always just about bones it's also about how animals change the landscape when they're used by humans you know yeah no that's uh, very interesting because i'd not yeah not heard of that kind of soil analysis being carried out before so i guess if any of our listeners want to carry out a search analysis well then they should become zooarchaeologists or you know Geoarchaeologists. I'm going to be honest, I just had bad flashbacks to when I did my soil analysis module during my master's that entire time. So. <laughs> You're telling me it's not fascinating? It's fascinating. I just remembered how poorly I did in that soil science course. <laughs> it's traumatic, let me tell you. But I think we should probably take a break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. We are talking about zooarchaeology in general and how you become a zooarchaeologist. What are the kind of you know interests you might have, the skills you may need, uh, all that good stuff. Although, to be honest, given that I'm a zooarchaeologist, you do not need many skills. So I figured for this part, we should like specifically talk about skills. I feel like, at least personally, with zooarchaeology, we can kind of divvy it up into like three main categories. You have your archaeology skills, obviously, your osteology skills, and then more biology, environmental studies type skills. And then, of course, some other things, depending on if you want to specialize, you know. I would agree with you, because of course, I mean, we'll get more into it probably in the third segment, but I am not a zooarchaeologist. But I, I do have an idea or two about what skills you'd require to work as a zooarchaeologist. I mean, you're basically a zooarchaeologist. Uh, but not on paper. I am an, an archaeologist by profession, but I'm not a zooarchaeologist. I've taken a lot of training, so a lot of professional development courses. I think I know a little bit about animal bone. <laughs> you know way more than me. I've hosted a podcast about animal bones for the past two years. I snuck my way in. But yes, on paper... I guess this will be more of a you episode as a you're the actual zooarchaeologist of the two. Absolutely not. <laughs> Brain empty, don't know anything. I mean, yeah, technically like my PhD is in archaeology as well because we don't have like a, a general zooarchaeology thing. So 
can't really study straight up zoarchaeology though, can you? Not really. I think it's a thing in some places. I know it wasn't like its own degree at my undergrad, but it was basically what you did if you took archaeology at Hunter College, probably because that was just like what the main projects were. They were working with UK schools and really digging into the zooarchaeological side. Yeah, because I find like for the most part, sort of if you want to study zoo archaeology, there's a lot of sort of very valid courses. So it tends to be more at a master's level, sort of postgraduate. Mm -hmm. They either tend to combine it with environmental studies or with human osteology as well. I'm not sure whether there is an actual, although there might be now a straight up zoo archaeology course. Definitely not undergraduate level, though. No. Probably have to be straight up archaeology or maybe archaeology and environmental archaeology or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can understand that for the undergrad level. But yeah, I think most people definitely tend to specialize as they get to more graduate level studies. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because you'll be like, you do undergraduate in archaeology, so then you get a feel for various parts of the discipline. So you do a little bit of your theory, you do, depending which university you go to, you do some excavation skills, sort of like more like excavation focused modules or sort of geoarchaeology or more in the way of looking at soil science and soil formation processes, which if you want to work in the field, that's brilliant. Do a lot more of that. And I guess, yeah, a little bit of osteology, a little bit of environmental archaeology. So you get a feel for what you might be interested in and then pursue it further at postgraduate level if you so wish. Yeah, and I think that's the funny thing, I guess, coming from a U.S. perspective as well, because at least what, you know, the the schools that I went to tend to have really been more anthropological in the way they approach archaeology. I know that's not the case for all U.S. schools. There are tons of schools specifically in like the Southwest who are really pushing the more analytical science part of archaeology. When I did my degree at Hunter College, I did two different types of archaeology. I was in the classics department getting a degree in classical archaeology, which was very, very theory-based, more about architecture and pottery. It was very boring, and I did not like it. (laughs) In the anthropology department, I was you know, was working in archaeology, but it was considered one of the branches of anthropology. So like my degree is technically in anthropology. It's a whole thing. That's a thing that I found a lot. So with friends of mine who did their undergraduate back in the US, that they seem to have mostly their degree is anthropology, as opposed to they specialized in archaeology within their degree, yeah. which was in anthropology. Yeah, it's weird. And like I said, there are places where you can specifically do archaeology, but I think most institutions just wrap it up in anthropology. So like when I got my degree, because I triple majored, so I didn't do a minor in anthropology, you had to take all of the main anthropology courses, which were, you know, cultural anthropology, linguistics, bioanthropology, human evolution type stuff, archaeology, and I'm probably missing one, but whatever. (laughs) It's probably something boring that I didn't, ethnography, I guess, maybe. But yeah, so it was like, a sliver of what your main workload was, which was really weird. And like I said, then I would go to like my classics classes, which were basically art history and architecture. (laughs) So definitely like coming to the UK and specifically doing my master's degree in archaeological sciences was a really weird wake up call in terms of like, oh, this is what archaeology also is, you know? Yeah, because I find like the system is quite a bit different again i'm not very knowledgeable about how the education system works in the u.s but i am confused by the whole sort of majoring in things system because i think the closest thing we have in the uk is getting a joint degree mm-hmm. we have sort of two subjects mashed together so you do i guess one you do tend to do a few more core modules so that's your major in a way so then your second sort of joins subject that you don't do as many yeah i mean that's kind of like what it's like in the u.s basically it's all based on credits so like your major you have like a certain amount of i forgot how many it's like 60 credits maybe or something and then your minor would be like half that and me being a a cool go-getter who wanted to prove something to no one i decided to do three majors so (laughs) and none of them have helped at all in my life. So that was 
Great. <laughs> so it's not about a destination. It's about the journey. <laughs> the journey was me taking so many night classes and then still managing to graduate early. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's all right then. Yeah. No wonder why I'm so tired all the time. <laughs> it just like, it's still the tiredness from your undergraduate. You're still sort of paying that back in installments or sort of in tiredness. I mean, honestly, I, I think about the amount of like all-nighters I pulled in my undergrad and the idea of me doing that now would actually kill me. I would just die. Study archaeology and become a zooarchaeologist. <laughs> You're selling it. But, you know, I mean, you, you kind of covered like archaeology stuff. And even though it is very different depending on where you go, I think the kind of basics are kind of the same. You know, you're, you need your basic archaeological theory to build your skills upon. Obviously, you don't necessarily need excavation skills. But if you're going into more of a commercial work, that's probably something you want to get. I mean, I, I've only excavated like twice in my entire life and I, I just don't do it anymore i guess it depends on what you want to do i mean if you're specializing in zoo archaeology really like well in the uk your options are either looking at academia or the commercial sector yeah well of course if you work in academia you don't necessarily have to like if you work as an academic zoo archaeologist you won't necessarily need sort of like the excavation skills per se Mm mm-hmm because you'll probably be researching and then collating the material that has been excavated by someone else on the site, and you bring it all together. Or especially if you specialize in something, I don't know, niche like ancient DNA or something, then you probably won't have to dig much. Yeah, you're doing more post-ex work. I mean, I know a few people who basically freelance now, but specifically do Zoark. So they do a lot of the post-excavation work for, you know, commercial and non-commercial sectors, which would be great if I could do that. But, you know, probably not. But yeah, no, like there's definitely different ways to kind of use it. I mean, I've been on site as a on-site faunal bone specialist, but I've also, I mean, my whole PhD has basically been me getting other people's excavated stuff and going through them. So it's like, I've done both, I guess. Yeah, but I find like a lot of the time is the latter. If you do it sort of within academia or even commercially or both, because a lot of people do both in a way. So they have their own sort of papers that they do publish, but then they also work as sort of specialist for commercial and non-commercial units. Yeah, and at the end of the day, kind of the base skills from archaeology are still needed regardless of whether or not you work on-site or off-site. It just kind of depends on like what else you're able to do. But I guess the other thing that doesn't really matter if you're on-site or off-site is knowing kind of the osteology parts of it. It's kind of the essential one, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, I think that what I like about archaeology is that it's a bit more forgiving because you have to know so much. If you're lucky enough, especially to work in an institution, you usually have the luxury of reference material. So, I mean, it's good. You should know most skeletal anatomy of, you know, quadrupeds in general or the anatomy of bone in general and, like, basic concepts of taphonomy and pathology. But, like... I could recognize like a crocodile skeleton, but I, I probably couldn't do the nitty gritty of a crocodile skeleton. Especially as a lot of the bones you'd find will probably have a lot of taphonomic damage on them. They might be incredibly fragmented. So if you just get, I don't know, like a third of the epiphysis of a juvenile sheep's femur, I mean, if you can identify it from the get-go, you just look at this two centimeter fragment and go, oh yeah, that's what it is. I mean, then hats off you're the you have superpowers the, the master of archaeology but yeah yeah no osteological knowledge i guess it'll be like the essential one whether you do work in the field or out the field even though i must say so sort of a bit of sort of field technique and excavation technique will be still something useful to know just because it informs your work in the way that if you know how an archaeological site operates that does also help you in your work as a zoo archaeologist Mm, true yeah because you especially because you'll understand you know that there are some taphonomic characteristics that are associated with the excavation itself you'll understand sampling bias things like that which are pretty integral to you know kind of figuring out the biases that may be part of your assemblage but yeah and then you know kind of need to know your general biology environmental studies like it, it probably helps to know like what a bone is yes <laughs> 
I mean, just, just, you know what? I'm just, just throwing it out there. Probably helpful to know what a bone is, which to be fair, sometimes I forget like the anatomy of a, the bone itself. So, you know. I mean, like I forget terminology all the time. They'll be like, oh, what's that? Oh, you know, could you see like that? It's, that's the spongy bit. Yeah, a lot of me copying and deleting spongy bits out of my PhD <laughs> <laughs> because I just can't remember what it's called. And honestly, even right now, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Hashtag spongy bits. Hashtag spongy bits. Chunky spongy bits. We love to see it. But also, you know, I mean, especially a site by site basis, you, you want to have some kind of idea of, you know, the range of specific species, you know, if you're finding a kangaroo in the UK and it's like a late Bronze Age assemblage, you probably have something very interesting going on there. So like having that kind of background is pretty helpful, kind of knowing the environmental changes, you know, the fact that some animals will burrow. So they may be, you might find rabbit bones in places that you know won't necessarily figure they'd be in, kind of the behavior animals really general stuff of like, you know, what do they eat? Does that mean that this animal ate that animal and that's what we're seeing in the assemblage? You know, it sounds like very basic stuff, but I mean, it is. It's just kind of that background information that you need to pull at to form your interpretations. Yep. (laughs) You still thinking about like what a bone is? (laughs) Human osteologists are going to hate this episode. (laughs) No, that's not a call out to human osteologists, by the way. I think I think zooarchaeologists are gonna hate this. <laughs> I mean, I think most zooarchaeologists hate this show. To be honest, it's oh. fine. Listen, I am the everyday man here to tell you that you can become a zooarchaeologist too with very little effort. I'm an inspiration. That's how I like to see it. Not only all that, so like those are kind of like the basic core skills I would say you need. But, you know, like everything else in archaeology, you can specialize if you want to be like a real nerd about it, which good for you. <laughs> I can I can only grasp the archaeology if I specialize any further, my brain will literally melt. But I guess you could be looking at sort of the soft skills as well, because you'd want to look at critical thinking. So when it comes to actually analyzing an assemblage and drawing conclusions, report writing specifically for archaeology is an important skill to have. And there's plenty of courses that you can do on that, that not necessarily a graduate level, they're just professional development courses that you can do on report writing. Still don't know how to write a report. <laughs> like literally only figured out how to write a report maybe like six months ago. No, wouldn't that be part of your PhD to like write a zooarchaeological report for the one site? Yep, but that I did six months ago. As a fair, for a PhD, there would have been a much larger report full of graphs and pretty things. Full disclosure, I actually, once I finish, at the time of this recording, I'm like literally two days away from submitting my PhD. After I submit, I literally have to go back and redo a bunch of reports. So, because I did them bad. Oh. It's fun. It's all fun. PhDs are just redoing all your work all the time. Uh, But yeah, no, you're right. Those are like the real nitty gritty core of like all of like archaeology, basically. Yeah. And I guess IT skills to an extent, because you need software like to like produce some of the scatter plots and the graphs for the report. Another thing I only learned probably like last year, I think like I had to literally take an Excel like online course because I just really couldn't remember how to use it. Oh gosh. Now my PhD is okay. Well, we'll find out by the time this comes out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe let's take a break so I can ponder the gravity of what you just said. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, case studies. These will be fun for this episode because they are basically just our own personal stories. The greatest of all case studies. Well, mostly Alex. No, you, you have a story. I mean, it, an interesting one for sure. Hmm. Interesting. 
I mean, you you decided to do the right thing, which is to avoid the uh, the PhD struggle as soon as possible, which is something I wish I did. I very nearly did, but then I didn't. Wish that was me. <laughs> so I think I thought if I did any more of that subject, my brain would literally fry. Yeah, well, now my brain's fried and I owe uh, six figures worth of student loan debt. Yeah, mine wouldn't have been in archaeology anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, might as well start off then with you. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Oh, that's all right. So, here's <laughs> the case study of how I've become a zoo archaeologist, except I am not. <laughs> so, here's the story of how I have not become a zoo archaeologist. So, as I said before, I'm an archaeologist by profession, but I'm not a practicing zoo archaeologist. I have done training in zoo archaeology, but that's not at degree or master's level. It's a combination of courses that I've taken and independent reading. And of course, you know, a deep passion for the subject, as you might expect from someone who's co-hosting a show about animal bones. But I think with me, because for most of my life, I had no idea that zoo archaeology was actually a discipline. Of course, I knew about archaeology, of course, which is something I found fascinating at the time, but didn't re- and really, again, given too much thought into. So if you take it, roll it all the way back, it was just this little kid that really loved animals. Because like I said, I was raised in a fairly rural area. I had, you name an animal, domesticate-wise, and we probably had it at some point because my family had some land and I used to spend a lot of time there and, you know, dogs and cats and chickens. I just really liked animals. And at the time, I wanted to be a vet until it probably hit me how much hard work it is actually going to vet school. <laughs> but jokes aside, it's just childhood dreams sort of went away as I proceeded with my own life and sort of did my degrees in that. And then the archaeology bug sort of came back, hitting me. So I decided I got to a stage years and years ago, thinking, I'll tell you what, I think I might retrain and give this archaeology thing a go. And while talking with a few people who are professional archaeologists, I found out that the study of animal remains was actually a thing within archaeology. And I found that fascinating because he was the perfect fit sort of for my love for animal and animals and wildlife, which I've had since I can remember. And archaeology, which was another sort of subject that I was very interested in. Actually, since I was a slightly older child, so I think I started, first started getting interested in archaeology at about five or six. So I thought it was almost a, a homecoming for me. So taking back to two passions that I had when I was very little, sort of, and try to turn them into a reality. So, of course, while I'm not a professional zoo archaeologist by trade, I have managed to actually become an archaeologist. I have been for a fair few years now, and I still sort of cultivate my interest in zoo archaeology, of course, with the podcast and sort of my own independent reading. I guess that's my story. You also have a great collection of reference material, to be fair. Yeah, they just domestic central. <laughs> I'm, it's, I'm jealous of it. Like, I wish I had that kind of collection, but I don't. I just have bits and bobs here and there that I've picked up. So in many cases, literally picked up. Well, in the West, having sort of domesticated species so to, to be looking at, especially if you're learning, is something very, very important. So it'd be good as well, like if there is somewhere near you or so, whether there's an institution or someone who does have a reference collection, there'll be something very good for you to consult sort of if you decide to train to become a zoo archaeologist. It's one thing reading about it and it's another actually looking at the material. will be modern, but still, because of course the, the modern specimens are, you know, complete. And then that can help you in the field or in academia or as a specialist or whichever path life takes you. It'll help you actually identify the often minuscule fragments that you find in an archaeological setting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I wish that I did, especially during my PhD, was like, if I had the time and the uh, resources to do like, take like a course in like butchery, like actually real life, like modern day butchery, just to have a better understanding of like the certain cuts and things like that, like stuff like that, that is technically it's modern. But I mean, you know, it comes from a place that has been practiced for 
many, many years. Same thing with kind of, like you said, working with domesticates and understanding, you know, raising domesticates and stuff. There are some changes, obviously, to how we do those things, but there's some very core aspects of it that haven't really changed at all. Things don't change. Like in terms of butchery practices, like if you look at some of the more traditional tools used for butchery, I mean, they wouldn't have changed an awful lot. The old saying that if something isn't broken, why fix it? But it's something I've tried to do sort of little experimental bits myself. And it's indeed how like I've got a lot of uh, my reference material is actually from uh, dinners. So various chicken dinners and turkey dinners and yeah. Yeah, same. (laughs) Like lamb roasts, which is good because that has also taught me a little bit about carnivore gnawing. Oh, yeah. Because sometimes I'd give the bones, because not the cooked bones, don't give cooked bones to your pets, but I've given like some of the uncooked bones to my dog and I'd leave them with her for a little bit for her to sort of play and then eventually get bored of them. And then I sort of like properly clean them up and I've got some reference material of a complete or a near complete bone with usually a butchery mark. So if it's a leg or lamb, you won't have the entire femur. It'll be chopped sort of at the epiphysis. So you have a butchery mark there. And then the rest, you have at least a lot of the diaphysis and one of the epiphysis still there. And you have kind of a gnawing on it too triple function yeah it also reminds me that i kind of wish i developed a better relationship with our local butcher <laughs> i'm sure with many butchers like just ask them if they got any spare bones it won't sound weird because they'll just presume you have a dog of course in my case i do have a dog and i do give them to my dog yeah don't worry it won't be weird they'll just think oh that's fine she's got a dog here have some bones it will mostly be ribs though which is fine. I mean, especially if you're kind of looking at, you know, taphonomy in general and just seeing, you know, the effects of carnivore gnawing on bone, generally speaking. So if you're learning and you want some like bones for reference, a bunch of ribs, probably not the best place to start. Yeah, yeah, probably. I don't know. I don't do any of the cooking in this household, so I don't I don't think I've ever spoken to our local butcher. <laughs> So that was my first problem. I do the bulk of the cooking mostly, so. Mm, yeah, I don't do anything. I'm coming to realize during this episode. Well, that's not true. Like, you moan about fish and pig. That's true. I'm very good at complaining. Top notch complaining. Extremely good. If only that was a job. You can be your own Pliny. Ugh, I wish. And there you go, Roman reference. Made it. <laughs> God forbid we got through this whole thing. <laughs> we got him. I was waiting. I really was waiting. That this is great. We should have a wee klaxon. Like Simona's Romans have arrived. Yeah. No one expects them. Actually, we do. Like a horn. Put a little jingle while I'm here, sort of like you know, holding my hands, sat in my dressing gown. <laughs> you know, when you clean all the bones up for your reference collection, how do you store them? Like, do do bones, if you clean them properly, like they don't stink or anything? Like, do, where do you keep them? Not if you've taken sort of the, the marrow and all the squishy bits out. Yeah. If you leave all that out, yes, it will royally stink. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. Where I guess I just I didn't completely dry out the bone when I was cleaning it and. And wow, it got moldy and gross real fast, folks. A solution to that, get the dog. She'll do most of the cleaning for you. Well, I my dog lives in a different country, Simona. We'll get so. a different dog. <sighs> I guess. That's the answer like, to any situations that that life throws your way. Get a dog. True. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is, it's interesting. I really like seeing your experiment. I remember like going over your house <laughs> and seeing all your experimental archaeology in the making. Yeah. But what about you? I've talked before an awful lot about myself, which is a very bizarre for someone who never talks about herself. No, it's good. We, we need to balance it out because I, I talk way too much on this podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean... I basically just kind of accidentally fell into zooarchaeology. Like I said before in this episode, I originally got into classical archaeology, mostly because that was the only archaeology degree at my undergraduate college, which I did not like. Then I realized that there was like archaeology courses in the anthropology department. So I went and did a major there as well. But it was still kind of 
weird I didn't feel like I was really getting like the full kind of training I guess because it was like seen as you know like a subfield of anthropology and ironically enough I was really worried about doing too much archaeology at Hunter College because they only really did zoo archaeology from what I saw there so I was like I don't want to you know I don't want to get pigeonholed into zoo archaeology I'd rather go and get like experience of like all different parts of archaeological science before I decide. So look at me now. That is great. I probably could have saved so much money (laughs) if I'd just done that. But, you know, I did my first excavation as a study abroad, working with the University of Bradford in Scotland. Really liked it. Really liked how they they really emphasized the hands-on process of being in the field, learning excavation skills, doing the actual sciences. So When I was looking into master's programs, I decided to apply there and specifically did archaeological sciences because at that point I I figured, you know, I had the, the, the archaeological theory training I knew about from classics. I knew about material remains, looking at pottery, looking at stonework, architecture, things like that. I was, so I was like, you know, I, I wanted a hands-on approach. Also, I hadn't taken a science class in like five years at the time. So it was like a big leap for me, especially as someone who has been like, okay at science. Like I, like I said before, I was really into biology and did environmental sciences in high school, but kind of was just like too scared of numbers and chemistry, which I failed spectacularly in high school. But yeah, so I jumped in to do that. The nice thing about doing my master's at Bradford was that I was able to take loads of different courses. So I took soil sciences, I took human osteology, didn't actually take any zooarchaeology classes because well, I, I took one, but it was like the only one they offered. But I think by that point, I was already really into the idea of going to zoo archaeology. And like when I was working in Scotland on my first dig, I mainly got sent to do a lot of the faunal bone stuff. So I already had that hands-on approach to it. So when it came to, you know, deciding what my master's dissertation was going to be about, I decided, you know, what, I'm going to do something about animal bones. Unfortunately, that ended up being fish bones. So I didn't get the greatest introduction into like a focused archaeological study, but, you know, it, it led to me doing my PhD work, which is way more interesting. No offense to the Orkney fish bones I looked at. The funny thing about like my PhD work is that it actually kind of goes back to the stuff I did in my undergrad that was more anthropological because now I'm looking at, you know, ritual and funerary stuff and like tying in the cultural aspects of that. So it, it like it kind of ends up becoming full circle at the end of the day. And then I don't know, I guess submit this PhD and hopefully it's good. And then I guess I'll have a doctorate. So that's my story. So like I should like, I don't know, applaud do a round of applause or something is please don't. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's it's nice though that we have very different experiences into getting into archaeology. So yeah. yeah, with me it was always a very sort of childish surprise. Like, oh, you can do that? I could do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was in my undergrad going, you guys just do that? And <laughs> ended up doing it anyway when I moved to a different country. But I think it's a fascinating field and I would encourage you, know, you know, if people have an interest with it, they should go for it. Mm-hmm, for sure. At the same time, like make sure maybe you do some courses, read up on it. And as with yeah. anything, with any discipline, of course, like we made it sound probably a bit e- easier than it is. Because I think with zoo archaeology, it's easy to sort of like get to grips with it, learn the basics, but it's difficult to master. And that sort of applies for, I think, pretty much everything under the sun. So, of course, as with anything, sort of before you commit yourself to like three or four years of your life to something, have a good think about it, read about it, listen to the show, obviously. <laughs> and- uh, yeah. Tell your friends and do some courses. See if you really think this could be something for you. And then if you still think like, go for it. Yeah. I mean, when we were first approached to even do this podcast for the archaeology podcast network, I mean, that was like one of the main reasons why I wanted to do it is because I wanted to show off, you know, that zoo archaeology is a very flexible and 
like huge fields in comparison to what you probably think of it if you weren't in the field itself. And that there's so many different facets to zoo archaeology that you could specialize in or you could approach. I mean, we definitely didn't even cover all of them in this episode. There's probably more that I don't even know off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, I, I think because it's so interdisciplinary, I think there's also uh, luckily so much resources out there for people who want to get into it because, you know, anatomy and osteology are, is used for other fields. You can find loads of like guides and manuals to the anatomy of certain animals and things like that. There's plenty of amazing manuals yeah. out. So you got that there. And I, I like to hope that a our podcast does help a little bit somehow. I think part of the reason, sort of like when I first sort of like agreed to co-host a show as well, because this is I wanted to create something that I would have liked to listen to when I first learned about zoo archaeology. That I would have loved for there to be something sort of like our show, where like we we are quite factual and pass a lot of information, but we also do make light about a lot of mm. things. It doesn't make for a very dry listen which is also fine there's a time and a place for everything but it's just uh, i've been trying my best to do some what i would have liked to listen to sort of maybe like you know six years ago yeah no for sure and i think also at least in the uk zoo archaeology can be a very insular field i mean I, you know we, we name drop a lot of people on this podcast because they're people that like me and simona both like either know from a professional standpoint or not because there aren't you know as many but you know we want to break through and make it more inclusive to other people so wow i think this is the most like uplifting episode we've done kind of maybe somehow yeah, it's taken a toll on me to be this positive for this long. So we should probably get to the close. Yeah, but then the moment we close this off, you're going to have some food, which is also a positive. So we're not going to too much positive all in one. I'm going to have a stir fry. Positivity overload. Yeah, it does have fish in it, though. Fish is good. Just not their bones. No. So yeah, that was an episode of Archeo Animals. As always, we are on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Follow us on there. Let us know what you want to see for another episode. We love hearing people's suggestions on episodes we should do. Is any questions, whatever. Oh, speaking of which, so like official statement, I did not rig the poll on the next video game episode. Because <laughs> someone here, and I'm not name dropping Alex, uh, has implied <laughs> that I've uh, somehow created false accounts to make sure our next video game episode would be about Dragon Age creatures. Um, I think that's fake news. <laughs> anyway, like, subscribe, tell your friends, all the other stuff. Review us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and I think that's it. Yeah, be a zooarchaeologist. Do it. Yep. Do it. Do, do it. it now. Do it. Do it. Do it. We'll bully you. We're going to bully you into doing it. Do it now. I'm not going to bully you. She probably will. I will. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.